You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. In this episode... There were nine board-certified maternal fetal medicine subspecialists who had all agreed to manage these patients in a similar fashion, which in, in other experience, if you get nine uh, MFMs in, in a room, um, you probably have 12 different opinions. Welcome to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. Today, it is my pleasure to speak with Dr. Joshua Dalkey on behalf of his co-authors to discuss their study, Early Term Versus Term Delivery in the Management of Fetal Growth Restriction, a comparison of two protocols. Dr. Dalkey is a maternal fetal medicine physician at the Methodist Perinatal Center in Omaha, Nebraska, and completed his fellowship at Women's and Infants Hospital of Rhode Island. Fetal growth restriction, as defined in this study and by most perinatal societies, as an estimated fetal weight less than the 10th percentile for gestational age, is associated with increased perinatal morbidity and can be associated with lifelong chronic health problems. A major concern with fetal growth restriction is a risk of stillbirth. However, preterm delivery to prevent stillbirth itself carries neonatal risk. The authors in this retrospective study examined the perinatal outcomes of different delivery timing strategies following the diagnosis of intrauterine growth restriction in one institution. Prior to 2010, once a fetus was diagnosed with growth restriction, antenatal testing and umbilical artery Doppler assessment was performed. Delivery was then performed at 37 weeks gestational age with all other normal testing. At 34 weeks, for the finding of absent in diastolic flow or oligohydramnios, or at the gestational age of diagnosis for reversed in diastolic flow in the umbilical artery Doppler or for any abnormal fetal testing. This was defined as the early term protocol. After 2010, the use of the umbilical artery Doppler systolic to diastolic ratio was added with delivery at 39 weeks with a normal umbilical artery Doppler, delivery at 37 weeks for umbilical artery systolic to diastolic ratio greater than the 95th percentile, or delivery at 34 weeks for absent in diastolic flow or oligohydramnios. This defined the term protocol. The primary outcome of the study was gestational age of delivery and secondary outcomes included neonatal morbidity, delivery less than 37 weeks gestational age, and neonatal intensive care nursery admission. In the early term protocol, the median gestational age of delivery was 37.1 weeks compared to 38.6 weeks in the term protocol. The neonatal intensive care unit admission rate was 35.9% in the early term group compared to 25% in the term group. Overall, there was no difference in neonatal morbidity between the groups, 19% versus 14%. The authors conclude that using the umbilical artery Doppler systolic to diastolic ratio to determine the timing of delivery resulted in an increased gestational age at delivery, decreased delivery less than 37 weeks gestational age, and decreased neonatal intensive care unit admission without increases in composite maternal or neonatal morbidity or stillbirth. Dr. Dalkey, thank you for joining us today to discuss your paper. Thank you very much for the offer. Happy to be here. Can you describe for us what your motivations were for doing this study? Of course. We performed a retrospective analysis of all of the fetuses that 
had evaluation for fetal growth restriction at our institution. This was a fellow project of mine while I was at Brown University. And when I first arrived my first year of fellowship, I noticed that we were doing a lot of surveillance for uh, suspected fetal growth restriction. And myself, along with some co-fellows, Dr. Mendez Figueroa, Lindsay Maggio, and Catherine Albright, later on, we decided that this was an ample and, and ripe opportunity to um, develop a database and look at some of the outcomes that were important for this at-risk population. So that was kind of the impetus, first fellowship and the certain requirements for, for research, but also seeing quite a large population of these patients in our institution. Why is it important to spend so much energy diagnosing and monitoring for fetal growth restriction? These fetuses and subsequent neonates are certainly at increased risk for several things. Number one, there's an increased risk of stillbirth in utero. In addition, the complications at birth include increased NICU admissions, other morbidity and mortality, and even there's some suggestion that there's a relationship to long-term chronic health problems in adult life in infants who are born or, or have fetal growth restriction in utero. Did you guys have a hypothesis or something you were trying to evaluate when you set up this study? Yeah, so I think one of the interesting things that we had talked about when designing this study was the fact that there were nine board-certified maternal fetal medicine subspecialists who had all agreed to manage these patients in a similar fashion, which in in other experience, if you get nine MFMs in, in a room, um, you probably have 12 different opinions. So we felt that that was a very unique situation and, and it kind of lended itself to kind of a, an evaluation of our, the outcomes of this protocol for fetal growth restriction surveillance. In addition, there was a time period where this protocol was reassessed as other protocols are done in the, in the division and it landed in a time period that we could assess any differences in outcomes with regards to the changing of the protocols. And so our suspicion was that with the prolongation of pregnancy that was inerrant in the recommendations of the latter protocol that we would see some improved neonatal outcomes. So that essentially was our hypothesis. Can you describe the differences and the sort of rationales between your late-term protocol and your term protocol for management for fetal growth restriction? Basically, we kind of broke it down into two things. One was, and, and some things were the same and some things were different, and I'll try to highlight those between the two protocols. Essentially, the diagnosis of fetal growth restriction was the same across the board. So we defined it as less than 10 percentile for gestational age based on Hadlock data. In addition, the surveillance essentially was the same as well. So we did, once diagnosed, uh, we recommended weekly umbilical artery SD ratios. We did twice weekly NST AFIs, and we performed interval field growth ultrasounds every two weeks. And so that antenatal testing was the same throughout. The important differences, I think, between the two protocols were with regard to timing of delivery. And if you had normal antenatal testing that just previously described, including normal umbilical artery SD ratios, normal NST AFIs, and normal interval growth, the difference between the two protocols was essentially timing of delivery. 
prior to March of 2010 when the protocol changed, delivery recommendations were at 37 weeks. Afterwards, this was prolonged to maintaining the pregnancy to 39 weeks, assuming, again, that all the testing was normal. In addition, if the umbilical artery SD ratios were elevated, and we define that as greater than the 95th percentile for gestational age, prior to the change in protocol, delivery after 34 weeks was essentially left up to the discretion of the provider. After the protocol, we specified that 37 weeks was the appropriate timing for delivery. And so those two things as far as timing of delivery in the normal setting in those fetuses with elevated umbilical artery SD ratios was the crux and the the difference between the two protocols. So your group felt that you could use changes in the umbilical artery Doppler to stratify the antenatal risk to to this population of fetuses and then better determine who would need an earlier delivery, correct? Correct. And specifically, I didn't mention this before, but those that had absent in diastolic flow or reversed in diastolic flow, the timing of delivery of those fetuses were unchanged across delivery protocols too. And so the goal of changing the protocol was essentially based on the assumption that prolonging pregnancy is important in the setting of fetal growth restriction in the setting of reassuring antenatal testing. So in essence, it wasn't so much to detect those that we were going to intervene early, but the opposite, that we would prolong pregnancy when the rest of the clinical picture, other than the umbilical artery SD ratios, was reassuring. So as you were designing this, what were the main outcomes that you thought were important to study? Our primary outcome was simply a change in median gestational age, and we defined that statistically significant if it was seven days. Other secondary outcomes included NICU admissions. We had a composite maternal and neonatal morbidity that included stillbirth in the neonatal morbidity. And essentially, uh, as outlined in the paper, the characteristics of the moms in our database were fairly similar, as well as we did not detect any adverse neonatal outcomes in our composite by prolonging the pregnancies of those with normal antenatal testing and normal umbilical artery dopplers. So what were the primary findings in your study? I would say that we had three interesting findings that I think are worth noting. One is that, in fact, the primary outcome of median gestational age indeed was significant when we moved the timing of delivery from 37 to 39 weeks in those with normal umbilical artery SD ratios. In addition, preterm delivery defined as less than 37 weeks was also decreased in the term protocol. And we also noted a decrease in neonatal intensive care unit admissions in the term protocol. Importantly, we also did not see any increase in adverse outcomes by prolonging pregnancy, either on the maternal or neonatal side. You looked at composite neonatal morbidity, which included things like sepsis and need for prolonged ventilation and other neonatal morbidities. And overall, that composite morbidity did not show any difference in the two groups, which certainly is reassuring. There seems to be some trends towards some increases in things like sepsis and hypoglycemia between the two groups. 
were those individually significant? And do you have any thoughts on why there appear to be somewhat of a trend with higher risks uh, with that early term protocol? With regard to the composite neonatal morbidity, the two areas, proven sepsis and hypoglycemia, were higher in the early term protocol, suggesting that there may be some neonatal morbidity that is significant in that 37-week delivery, despite the fact that our composite morbidity was not significant. So how has this study changed your clinical approach to the management of fetal growth restriction? Well, I will tell you, I, uh, I'm not a fellow anymore, and I'm not at Brown anymore. So I think that uh, one thing that has been shown in previous studies by even one of my very good friends, mentor, Dr. Chohan, is that there's quite a lot of variation in the management of fetal growth restriction with regard to surveillance and timing of delivery and what those indications are. I think the value of putting out this paper and showing at least a protocol, I wouldn't suggest that this is the end-all, be-all based on the evidence, but it is a protocol that does use the best available evidence out there, I think, as far as managing fetal growth restriction. I came to Nebraska with this protocol in mind in the management of fetal growth restriction, and I think that it stands up. In general, reassuring testing in those diagnosed with fetal growth restriction in the absence of any abnormal Dopplers should be reassuring, and there's evidence that pregnancies can be continued beyond 37 weeks, and I think that's an important point as well as to say that by doing that, we may be able to decrease NICU admissions without any concomitant worsening of neonatal or maternal outcomes. There's a lot of debate, in, as you raise, in, in how we define and how we manage fetal growth restriction. These were not, obviously, parts of your study here, but can you comment on how other definitions of fetal growth restriction may or may not be useful in adapting protocols such as this, such as defining growth restriction by a isolated small abdominal circumference or using sure. different estimated fetal weight cutoffs or even multi-vessel Doppler assessment. Correct. And, and I think that, again, a unique aspect of the protocol that was established at Brown was the fact that many of the ancillary Dopplers that have been described were not part of routine practice. I can say yeah, again, being outside of that and at a different institution, that's not the case. Certainly, the definition of fetal growth restriction matters. If we're using this for screening, you can get into the idea that even if you use a, a more loose definition, you're going to catch more patients and possibly cause harm by more surveillance when that's not necessary. I think that's certainly a different question than the one that we had in our paper, but equally, if not more important, is how do we define fetal growth restriction and who should be put in this category that needs extra surveillance and possibly an intervention as far as timing of delivery. A second category that I think our paper touches on a little bit more is once you define fetal growth restriction, however you do, what do you do with them? and what improves outcomes. Certainly, there's a lot of evidence, I think, that umbilical artery SD ratios 
are related to neonatal outcomes and the other ancillary tests we are continuing to learn about. One thing that I think interesting was that in 2010, we essentially modified this protocol that mimics what the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine put out for their consensus guidelines after that. And so I think that the protocol that's described in our paper is consistent with other consensus guidelines by people like the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. What do you think are important areas of research and diagnosis and management of fetal growth restriction at this point? I think that you touched on earlier that where do these other Doppler studies fit in as far as a surveillance program? Certainly, there's evidence to suggest that perhaps a cerebro-placental ratio using an MCA Doppler may predict adverse outcomes, particularly in those with elevated umbilical artery SD ratios. And that's something that we did not do and not mentioned in our study, but other studies have suggested that that is a predictive measure of adverse outcomes, particularly in those with elevated umbilical artery Dopplers. Ductus venosus Dopplers have also been suggested to be predictive. But I think that finding the appropriate Doppler studies that anticipate issues with the fetus and, and specifically that suggest placental insufficiency for the cause of fetal growth restriction remains an important endeavor as far as research. In addition, what you mentioned before is who, how do we properly define this condition as concerning? Certainly, a large proportion likely of our patient population was a constitutionally small with no pathology, but again, the tendency is to err on the side of assuming placental insufficiency or another cause when these fetuses grow to the less than the defined 10th percentile. Do you have any key points that I haven't hit on that you wanted to highlight from your paper? Can I give a shout out to my co-authors? Certainly can. Uh, I certainly would love to thank Dr. Kathy Winstrom at Brown University. She was very instrumental in not only encouraging us as fellows, but also very helpful in the design and editing of this paper. And I can't thank her enough for that. And my co-fellows while at Brown, Dr. Hector Mendez Figueroa, Lindsay Maggio, and Catherine Albright, this kind of became a project of fellows as far as design. And I think that that was a very significant and made it uh, very fun for me personally. And certainly Dr. Sini Chohan, who has done a lot of work in the area and who is someone that I consider a mentor, a personal mentor, uh, and I thank him very much as well. Dr. Dalkey, thank you very much for spending time with us today, as well as for your contribution to the American Journal of Perinatology. We enjoyed hearing about your study, and I think there's a lot that our readers can take home from your paper. Thanks again very much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology. Perinatology.